0: following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore for our teaching resources visit www.shore.org.nz. So we've dealt with father son and spirit but over these next two weeks today and next week we're going to finish by looking at the two other themes from the creed the church today we're going to look at the identity of the church and then next week We'll finish by looking at what the creed says about the future. So for today, though, we're looking at the church, the identity of the church. And uh, there's two phrases in the creed, two lines in the creed that deal with the church. It says, I believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. And so we've talked in the past about how the word Catholic, even though I know it feels a bit funny for some of us to say the word Catholic in the creed, but it's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. There's that misperception, I think, and it scares some Protestants off. Uh, so, you know, when Hillsongs wrote their song uh, based on the creed, they just left out the word Catholic and they just talk about, I believe in God's holy church because I guess they'll sell more albums to Protestants that way, <laughs> which is fair enough. You know, I know it's a little bit confusing, but the word Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. When the, when the creed was put together, the Protestant Reformation was over 1,000 years away. So there was no catholic church or protestant church there was just the church and yes it had its divisions and its factions and its troubles but it was it was the church and so catholic in the sense of roman catholic didn't exist the word catholic in this sense just means universal it means the church big c church the church as it is globally the church made up of people from every tribe and race and culture and nation and tongue on earth that confess jesus as lord and the church historically Down through every generation, generation, every century, those who confess Jesus as Lord. So the holy Catholic Church are all those living and dead who love Jesus and follow Jesus and who will be with Jesus in the new creation. That's what we're confessing and affirming when we talk about God's holy Catholic Church. So to get into this, I want to look at a passage today uh, where Jesus talks about the church. Let's see what Jesus has to say about the church. Matthew chapter 16 There's only, I didn't realize this, but there are only two times in the Gospels where Jesus uses the word church. He doesn't talk about the church a whole lot because when you think about it, the church didn't officially exist during the life of Jesus. The church only officially came into existence after Jesus ascended, poured out the Holy Spirit, and then on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. Uh, But Jesus talks about the church twice as something that's coming down the track, something that's coming after he's. After he's gone. And this is one of those two times in Matthew 16 where Jesus talks about the church, and it's a good place to go to get a sense of Jesus' vision for what the church is intended to be. The context of this passage is Jesus and his disciples have gone up north way in the northern part of Israel. They've gone up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a really nice little spot, and they've gone there to get away. They've deliberately gone there to withdraw from the crowds, get away from the hustle. Uh, and just have some rest, have some relaxation. I've been to that spot a couple of times now in Caesarea Philippi. The last time was a couple of years ago when we took a group from shore there. It's a great, it's a lovely, beautiful spot, Caesarea Philippi, kind of this forested area, very lush, very green. Uh, we had a picnic lunch there this time. And the, the, this, the distinctive feature of Caesarea Philippi is this huge rock face in the area, big, sheer rock face, with several... Caves, underground caves, going back, some of them going back a long way into the rock face. One of those caves has an underwater spring, an underground spring, coming out of it. And in one of these caves, I'm not sure if it's the one with the spring or one of those caves there, archaeologists have found an ancient shrine, and they believe the shrine is dated back to around about the first century, so that would put it right in the time of Jesus. A shrine that's dedicated to the worship of a Greek god, the Greek god Pan, Now, Pan was the god of the forest, the god of nature, the god of wildlife. Uh, And that sounds very nice, but there are some practices that were associated with the worship of the god Pan, which are pretty horrific, including infant sacrifice. Uh, That's one of the things that went along with worshippers of the god Pan as they would literally sacrifice their children. And it is believed that maybe in this cave where the shrine was found, uh, infants may have been slaughtered in that very cave. And the, and the water, the stream coming out from this cave may have run red with the blood of the infants that were slaughtered in that cave. So this, in many ways, it's a beautiful place, naturally speaking, but it's a very dark place, spiritually speaking, at least in terms of its history. It's, uh, it signifies a lot of evil. And it's interesting that Jesus chose that spot. We don't know exactly where he was standing when he said this, but he chose that area, that region, to make a statement, an important statement, about who he is and about what the church is. So in Matthew 16, verse 13... When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's Jesus' way of referring to himself, the Son of Man. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And here's the verse I want to focus on today. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I think what Jesus is doing there, by the way, is a little wordplay on Peter's name. You don't catch it in English, but Peter's name in Greek was Petros. The word for rock is Petra. So he's saying, you are Petros, and upon this Petra. I will build my church. And you can imagine Jesus kind of using this rock face, maybe he's standing in front of, as a backdrop for talking about Peter as a leader in the early church, saying, Peter, upon your confession of faith, I'm building my church, and you're going to be a significant person in it. You're going to be like a foundation member, foundation leader in this church. I don't think he's saying Peter was going to be the first pope, by the way, but, which is where that comes from. That belief that uh, you know the Pope started with Peter because Jesus told him, "Upon this rock I'm going to build my church." I think that's reading a little bit much into it, but Jesus, I think, is certainly saying, "Peter, you're going to be a significant leader in the early church, which will be built upon the very words you've just said—that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." So, uh, let me take verse 18 again, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades—some of your translations may say hell. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. What what I think is really significant uh, and important to recognize here is that Jesus did not invent the word church. When he says, upon this rock I will build my church, he didn't just come up with that word. He didn't just think of a word that would sound good and that's going to be the name of his movement. The word church was already in circulation. It was a well-known word. People used it all the time. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia, And it literally means to call out. Ecclesia, to call out, or the ones who have been called out. And it refers to a gathering of people who are called out, called out of their homes, called out of their workplaces, called out of their neighborhoods, to gather together for a particular purpose, for a particular reason, for a particular function. So straight away, you get this idea right up front. Here is the idea that the ecclesia, the church, In the Bible, that word always, always, always refers to a community of people, never the place that the people meet. The church is always the people, never the place where the people meet. And that's interesting because today, I think, even though we know better, we still default to talking about the church as a building. We talk about buying a church. We talk about getting married in a church. We talk about driving past a church. And we don't mean anything by it, and we don't mean to be unbiblical when we say those things. But what we are doing subtly, just by using that language, we're reinforcing the idea that the church is more or less equated with bricks and mortar. And it's just never used. It's not used that way in the Bible. It wasn't even used that way in the rest of the ancient world. It's not what it meant. It meant a gathering, a community of people. We are the church together. It's not the building that we do or don't meet in. So when we come together on a Sunday morning, in a sense, we're not coming to church. We're coming together as a church, and we're going to God. That's what's happening here. We're coming together as the ecclesia, as the community of God's people, and we are together coming before God. So this word ecclesia, it had a couple of different meanings. It meant a couple of different types of gatherings in the ancient world. And both are quite significant for understanding what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the church. The first of them, Jesus' disciples would have immediately recognized because it's a very Jewish meaning. speaking to his Jewish disciples here, and the word ecclesia was one that connects to the Old Testament story of Israel. When Jesus' disciples read their Bible, they read it in Greek. They read a Greek version of the Old Testament. That was just the, the common language that they, that they spoke. And the Greek version of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. When they read the Septuagint, the word ecclesia is there a lot. It's there in the Old Testament. And you know what it refers to? Most often, most significantly, it refers to the gathering of Israel. And particularly that moment when Israel gathered at Mount Sinai. You know, we talked about this in our Exodus series last year, and we went through that moment when Israel had uh, that, that revelation of God's presence. Mount Sinai, the thunder and the lightning and and the glory of God, the holiness of God descending down onto the mountain. That is a context where this word appears, the word ecclesia. Let me just read you one reference to this. You don't need to turn there because the word church is not there in English anyway, but I'll just show you where it appears. Deuteronomy 9 verse 10. Moses is talking. He says, The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, on them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of fire, on the day of the assembly. Now that word assembly, there's ecclesia. There's Not in Hebrew, but in Greek. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, that's the word ecclesia. So you could be cheeky and translate that on the day of church. First church service in the world ever. When was it? When Israel gathered at Mount Sinai and beheld the presence of the Lord. It was in Acts 2. Wasn't the day of Pentecost the first time the church gathered is Israel at Mount Sinai? That's pretty awesome church service. That day when they went to church and beheld the presence of the Lord, the thunder and the lightning and everything else—pretty hard to replicate that with smoke machine and lights these days, you know. Though some churches try, don't they? But you know, that's uh, that's that's what was going on there. They went to church on that day, and and there you go. From there, the story of the church unfolds. So through the Old Testament, Israel is the ecclesia of God the people of God, the community of God, who gather together to be a light to the nations, to, to bear the name of God, to bear the image of God, to reflect the glory of God to the world. And so what Jesus is saying, by picking up this particular word and then using it for the movement that he is beginning, he's saying the church stands in continuity with the story of Israel. Church didn't come out of nowhere. Church didn't just you know, spring up from nothing. The church is part of a long, long story going right back to Mount Sinai. The gathering, and the mission of God's people through the centuries. So in the Old Testament, Israel was the ecclesia, the church of God. And then Jesus comes as the fulfillment of Israel's story, the embodiment of Israel. And he begins to redefine the boundaries of the ecclesia. He begins to redefine who is part of this ecclesia, who is part of this people of God, who is part of this movement. And the way that he seems to be defining it is is not around ethnic origins anymore. It's not around tracing your ancestry anymore. It's not about whether or not you are a legitimate child of Abraham. Now it's about whether or not you follow the Messiah. Now it's about whether or not you confess Jesus as Lord, regardless of whether you're a Jew or non-Jew. Now the Ecclesia, following on from Jesus, is a movement of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, not excluding Jews, but not exclusively Jews either, who love Jesus and follow Jesus. That's the church now, which is why as you get through the New Testament story, you get to 1 Peter, and Peter talks about the church as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a chosen people. Well, those are all titles for Israel. Those are all titles you can find in the Old Testament for Israel. And Peter's now just loading them up onto the church. What is he saying? The church has received this mantle. The church is like passing of the baton now from Israel to the church. Not that Israel is unimportant, deeply important in the biblical story. But now the church stands as the, the ecclesia, the church, the spiritual people of God. And have the same calling in the world to be the light to the nations. The city on the hill that Israel had in the Old Testament. So there's a big story going on here. And when we talk about the church and we think about the church, we've got to understand ourselves as part of that story and part of carrying on the vocation and the calling that Israel had through the Old Testament. It's an amazing privilege. We've been grafted in to a, to a beautiful story, a rich story. That's our heritage. We've got to honor that. So that's one use of ecclesia. So immediately, Jesus' disciples are thinking, okay, so you are connecting us to, to this, this story. We, this movement is really part of a big, long backstory here. But then there's another meaning of ecclesia as well. In the Roman world that Jesus and his disciples were living in, ecclesia was, was a common word, and it was used to, a politi- to describe a political gathering of people in a city, a social or political gathering. So as an example, uh, if, if the emperor, who was Caesar, if the emperor had some news that he wanted to disseminate to the empire, let's say it was news of a, of a battle. battle that's been won, the Roman armies, armies conquered some people group, and the emperor wants to let everybody know. So he would dispatch some heralds throughout the major urban cities in the empire, cities, you know, Philippi, Corinth, Athens, wherever. And these heralds would go out into the cities, and they would stand in the public square or in the theater, And they would blow a trumpet. And they would call out the people. Can you hear where this language is coming from? They would call out the people. And they'd come out of their homes, out of their workplaces, out of wherever they are. And they would gather together as an ecclesia. And by the way, you know the message that was given? You know what that was called? The gospel. The euangelion, the gospel, the good news. Where that comes from? Good news. It It was a Greek word used of the, of the edicts or the news of the emperor. So you, you have, and it, it, it sounds strange to use these words, but in a city, you have a church gathering to hear the gospel. And it's nothing to do with anything spiritual. It's the citizens gathering together to hear about the latest news from the emperor. But that's a church hearing the gospel. So can you, given that connection, can you hear what Jesus is saying? Just by using the word ecclesia, there should be a, a, a whole lot of associations that suddenly fire in people's minds. That So hang on, Jesus, you're saying that we, we're, we are a different kind of gathering, a different kind of citizenry, in a sense, in a different kind of city for a different kind of purpose, serving a different kind of king, right? All the parallels are there. We serve the true king and we have received the true gospel into our lives. We've heard the real good news. We've heard the real Galleon. And we've been transformed by it. And we've been called out to hear it. Now we're gathered together as the people of God. And then as those who have heard this good news, we're now commissioned to take it and share it with those who haven't yet heard it. Which is exactly what Jeremy is equipping us to do in this relational outreach course. To take the gospel, to share it. To equip us to be the ecclesia. To be the church. Holding out the good news. So there's this context going on as well. And, and Jesus is saying, but by using that word ecclesia, he's not saying, I want you to go and be just like those Roman gatherings. He's not saying, I want you to be just like those groups of citizens that, that gather together to vote or to hear the news of the emperor. He's saying, I want you to be completely different to those gatherings. Do you hear what I'm saying? By using the same word, Jesus is drawing a distinction. He's drawing a contrast. It's the same thing that happens in the New Testament when the biblical writers call Jesus Lord That was a word that was used of Caesar. But when they call Jesus Lord, they're not saying he's just like Caesar. They're saying he's a completely different kind of Lord. When Jesus uses the word church, he's not saying, I want you to be just like those gatherings that go on in these cities. He's saying, I want you to be a completely different kind of community. I want you to be a contrast to the world. I want you to be a city within a city. I want you to be a nation within a nation. I want you to be a people within a people that stand out and look different just by virtue of being who you are and following who you follow and serving who you serve and your relationships with each other. We should be a contrast community as a church. That's who Jesus wants us to be, a contrasting community, a contrast with the world. There's a lot of talk. You get into Christian circles, pastor circles, whatever. There's, There's a lot of talk about the church being relevant to the world. And in one sense, I understand that. I understand that, of course, of course, there's a need for the church to speak the language of the world, and for the church to connect and engage with the world, and to serve the world. And and in that sense, to be relevant is good. But sometimes, I think this, this this talk about the church being relevant to the world can get to such a point that it's like we just kind of want the church to blend into the world, so that we don't really look any different to the world, and then we've got nothing to offer the world. I was looking at a church website the other day. I won't tell you which church it was, uh, but it had a video loop. I mean, the website looked good, and it had a video loop on the homepage. And it was, you know, different events, people, services in this church, and everything was so high energy. You know, it's was like people, everyone's jumping up and down. It was high fives. Everyone's laughing. The service is big, stage-led, performance-driven, big lights, everything. It's all just wow. And it's like everyone looks amazing not a hair out of place. Lots of beautiful people in this, in this church, apparently. And honestly, my first thought was, I probably wouldn't fit in there. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not cool enough. Uh, but if, I mean, some people might. Some people might really be drawn to that, and it might really attract. But I still question whether that's the right message to send. I mean, ultimately, what this church is wanting you to think is, we are the coolest show in town. This is where it's happening. This is where the party is. You come to this church, you're not want to go to any other church because we are it. We've got it going on here. That's what they're wanting to say. Now, that's fine for the church to you know, be, be, have a party, be a, be a cool place, be a happening place. But is that really the calling of the church at its heart is to be relevant, is to be cool, to be the, the coolest show in town? I think honestly, if we try, it's, just, it's, it's a battle you can never win. If you, if you are trying to provide the coolest show in town, people can always find something cooler. People can, if you want cool, you can go to any bar, any nightclub in the city. If you want a, a great concert, you can go to any number of international artists that are coming through New Zealand all the time. If you want motivational speakers, you can go listen to a podcast, you can go to YouTube, you'll hear all kinds of them. We, I mean, we can never offer, and I don't think it's our calling to just offer the coolest, the hypest, the hippest, the whateverest, you know. What, what we have to offer the world is what they cannot find anywhere else, which is the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what people cannot find in any other setting, any other venue. That is what we've got to hold on to. Yes, we've got to hold that out in a way that's relevant. I I agree. Yes, we've got to communicate that in a way that connects with people, in a way that engages. I'm not talking about being cloistered away and kind of incubated from the world. But I am saying that at the heart of our calling is to hold out the gospel. The gospel looks different to the world. And we are supposed to be a community that looks different to the world. We are supposed to be a peculiar people in the midst of this world. A contrast community. So people look at us and they see something that is different. It's like the church in the book of Acts. It talks about how people in the end feared the church. They, they feared the power of God that was going on in the church and yet God added to their number every day people being saved. It's so that sense of, man, this is, this is so different. I don't even know what category to place these people in and yet there's something irresistible about that community. That's the church when it's being the church. So let me mention just briefly three things, three ways in which I think as a church we're called to be a contrast community with the world, to look different to the world. Firstly, we are to be a community of love Sorry, a community of faith in a secular world. Let's start there. A community of faith in a secular world. And we live in such a secularized country, such a secularized nation, I think most of us have probably lost the, the faith to believe that God still changes lives. God still changes lives through the church. So many people seem so hardened against the gospel, and yet he does, and yet he is. I was just hearing a story recently from Roland, our youth pastor, and I won't, I won't give you many details. detail, I'm just going to have to tell the story very generally for privacy, but, but just a young person who's come into our youth community and whose life is being changed, who has had very, very little Christian background or understanding at all, very little awareness of just even the basics of a Christian worldview, and yet they have come in and they're asking questions and you can just see the transformation that's happening. They've got a Bible, they're reading the Bible for the first time They're putting countless numbers of post-it notes in their Bible of questions and things that are standing out to them. They're learning these stories for the first time. It's coming alive to them. And this is happening. This is happening in our youth community. This is happening on Wednesday nights. It's happening in this school because that's another touch point for people with our youth workers, with Roland and Molly. It's happening. It's been good for my faith to hear that. Because like you, sometimes I get a bit cynical and I wonder if this kind of thing even happens in our day and age. But I tell you what, it does and it is and it's real. I think sometimes we just need the faith. We're we're our own worst enemies. We just don't believe that God can do what God says he will do. But let's pray and let's trust and let's believe the church is called to be a community of faith, holding out the gospel, holding out the good news. Of course, this can happen outside of church gatherings and church settings, but we can be in various ways a community where people can really encounter not what's cool and hip and trendy, but hope and meaning and purpose and identity in a dark world. So the church is called to be a community of faith in a secular world. Secondly, the church is called to be a community of love in a selfish world. And our world is incredibly selfish. Uh, I was reading a book recently that describes our age as the age of the big me. It's the big me. I really am a big deal. You know, That's the mindset uh, in our age. We live in an incredibly narcissistic culture and uh, social media has just fueled that fire that we really think we are a really big deal and I cannot believe everyone else is not as interested in my life as I am. And that's kind of the prevailing mindset that people have. And in the midst of that world where it's so much about me and look at me and look at this and look at my photos and whatever else, the church is supposed to subvert all of that, turn it on its head and serve the world and love other people and lay our lives down and give ourselves away for other people. And put the spotlight off us and onto other people. And didn't we see it this morning with the tractor trek, right? Those of you that were there, isn't it? Well, I mean, that was, to me, I look at that, I think that's the church being the church right there. There it is. And I just hope those who were there who don't know Jesus saw that and saw, man, that is the gospel. That is the gospel with wheels on it, right there, those tractors. And that, you know, that breakfast, that's the gospel. That's the church, hands and feet of Jesus. There it is right there. These gatherings are vital. It's the lifeblood of our church, but these gatherings should be, you know, a place where we are mobilized and equipped to be sent out so that the action is out there, not just in here, that we are a selfless community, and by our commitment to love, to serve, to bless, we will look different to the rest of the world. And finally, the the church is called to be a community of hope in a disillusioned world. And you notice I've just used those three virtues of the New Testament, faith, hope, and love. The church is called to be a community of hope in a disillusioned world. I think our world is pretty disillusioned. I think a lot of people have given up faith in conventional institutions to really make much of a difference. People have lost faith, I think, in political systems uh, to bring about change, lost faith in economics, to bring about change, lost faith in in education, to bring about change. In many respects, they've lost faith in the church as a conventional institution to bring about change. And yet there's a moment in time, I think, for the church to step forward and say, we, we have a message of hope. We are a people of hope. And we have a, a gospel that is so full of hope in such a hopeless world to speak and to live and to show. And we should be willing to do that. We saw an example of it. You might have read about it a few weeks ago. Uh, there was a group of 30, uh, 30 Christians um, that come from Israel and Palestine And they represent two parts of the Christian church. One part are Palestinian Christians worshipping Jesus as Palestinian Arabic Christians. The other part are Messianic Jews. Jews, Israelis, who have found Jesus, who love the Messiah, who have found what the Hebrew story always points towards. And uh, you, you may not be aware, but though, even though they are, both of those groups are Christians, they are very, very different types of Christians, and they're very different branches of the Christian church, and they have quite different theologies at a lot of points. But here you have this gathering that's happened, uh, I think in Greece, uh, of 30 representatives from both sides of the Christian church, Palestinians and Jews, both loving Jesus, and they've come together, they've worshipped, they've prayed, and they've hammered out this statement of their common belief. It's, it's really worth reading. Uh, let me just read you a couple of sentences of it. In times of tension and violent conflict, relationships suffer while suspicion, accusation, and mutual rejection thrive. At such times, it is even more essential that we who affirm our unity in the Messiah must uphold ethical standards of life that are worthy of our calling in all our attitudes, words, and deeds. What a wonderful witness to the world. I'm particularly interested in this because those of us that went to Israel, you know, the year before last, we, we met uh, in, a, in a church. We went to a worship service at Turan Baptist Church just outside of Nazareth, and that was a Palestinian Christian church. So it's quite an experience to sing some of the songs that we sing here in, at Shore in Arabic. And I think there's still a perception among a lot of Christians in the West that there can't be any Christians who are Arabs. can't be any Christians who are Palestinians, can there? There's plenty. There are plenty of Christ followers among Palestinian communities, and we worshipped with them. And it's an amazing thing to worship in Arabic and to, and to use the Arabic greeting, salam, peace to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to a Palestinian. And this church, they are part of an alliance of churches, the Tehran Baptist Church, and they meet with other types, different types of Christian churches. And I understand, I think, that they even meet with a congregation of Messianic Jews from time to time as an expression of their unity in the Lord, that Jews who love Jesus. Palestinians who love Jesus come together and worship together. I can't think of a better statement of the unity of the church on the planet today than a combined worship service of Israelis and Palestinians singing worship to Jesus, alternating between Hebrew and Arabic. What does that say? And it's, you know, you talk to some of these Palestinian Christians about what hope is there for peace. What hope is there for peace in Gaza, for peace between Israel and Palestine, for peace in the Middle East? And you know what they say, the gospel. Got the, it's the only hope they believe. And it's not just, you know, this kind of naive hope. It, they really, that's why they grieve the exodus of Christians from places like Gaza and Bethlehem, because they see it really as the removal of hope for peace. They see it as a diminishing of the capacity for genuine peace in those regions when Christians leave understandably that Christians would want to get out of those regions but the point is the gospel of peace is real and it brings real hope and it's carried by the church brothers and sisters in Christ into these war torn places of conflict and it provides a living demonstration of racial reconciliation that you cannot find anywhere else in the world. Military solutions don't get you there, government solutions don't get you there, economic sanctions don't get you there, the church is offering the hope of the world right there reconciliation, the gospel of reconciliation, I dare say the Apostle Paul would be proud of that. It would be just what he wrote to the Galatian church. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. He would be cheering them on. So would Jesus. So we've got to remember, you know, it's easy to have these lofty ideals for the church, but we still see the church as she is with all their disappointments and weaknesses and their frustrations and brokenness and everything else. But just remember what Jesus said. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus builds the church, not us. It's his church. I find that very, very reassuring as a pastor, that it's not about my efforts it's not about how good, how much I can serve or what programs we come. It's not about the efforts of the elders. It's not about the efforts of the staff members. It's not ultimately about any of us. It is Jesus building his church. And here's what he promises us. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And he may, it's possible that he may have even been thinking of that cave leading to the awful underworld practices of the pan-god. Some people believe that that, that cave was called the gates of Hades. The gates to the underworld. And Jesus is saying, not even the the most grotesque forms of evil and darkness in this world will ultimately stand against this church that I'm building. This movement that I and my spirit are giving birth to. That's what Jesus is saying. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how at times the church just seems to limp along, no matter how difficult it is in this life, ultimately the church will prevail Ultimately, the church will get there in the end and we will be the victorious company of those who stand, as Revelation pictures it, on the far side of the sea with the Lamb, worshipping Him with all creation. For all eternity. The church will be victorious. And by church, I don't mean any one local church. I mean church big C, the company of all those who love and follow Jesus. we have got to keep that hope in mind as well, or else we will become disillusioned about our own efforts because they will be just a drop in the bucket. And it'll be three steps forward and two steps backwards. But the church is built upon Jesus. It is built by Jesus. And ultimately, it is for Jesus. And he will reclaim his church and bring her to fulfillment as his bride at the end of time. That's what we've got to hold on to. So I just encourage you, as we wrap up, <clears throat> just to love the church like Jesus loves the church. I know in our day how easy it is in this culture of individualism that we are in to start getting the idea in our head the church is not really that important. What really matters is just me and God and this personal, private communion. But just remember how precious the church is to Jesus. Just remember, Jesus didn't come just to save individual, isolated Christians. He came to build a people, a holy nation. He came to claim a people and raise up and call out, Ecclesia, call out a people out of the world, out of our own identities, out of all the other stuff that distracts us, into this new communion to be a reconciled people of God, bearing the image of God in the world and blessing the world in Jesus' name. He's come to form a people and we are part of that people. Jesus would want us, I believe, to give the best of ourselves to the church. That's what I encourage you to do. If this church is just still kind of marginal in your life, if you're just kind of playing around the edges of it, you just come occasionally, you just kind of kick the tires and that's about it, I want to encourage you to make this church, make that church central in your life. Some of you have been in that place where the church has been really central and you've been fully involved and now you've just drifted back out to the outskirts again. This is not about just doing a bit of time and then sort of drifting away again. This is about believing in what Jesus believed in, loving what Jesus loved, having the heart that Jesus had for the local church. I want to encourage you to give the best of yourself, the best of your time, the best of your energy, the first fruits of your finances to the church for the sake of the work of Christ in the world. Not the crumbs of your time, not the dregs of your attention, but the best of yourself not to build an insular little social club, but to strengthen and build up the ecclesia of God that we may show and share the love of Jesus in a broken and a dark and a hurting world. Let's pray. Jesus, we're just reminded this morning of how much you love the church. Broken though she is, She's your bride. She's the one for whom you died. And Jesus, I just simply pray that you would give us a vision of the beauty of the church. So often we look, we look at the church as she is, we, get, we can get discouraged, Jesus, but give us a vision of the beauty of the local church. Give us a vision, God, of the, of the power and the potential of the local church when it's truly being The church, give us a glimpse, God, of the vision that you had, that your people might be one and give us the faith to believe that it could be so even in our day. For Jesus' sake. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.